Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 421 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, if you need encouragement, you came to the right place. I have a gut honest conversation with Christine Kane, which got pretty emotional at times. And uh, I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Thanks to our partners, this episode is brought to you by Generis. You can schedule your free Generosity Pulse Report today, which is an exclusive offer for listeners of this podcast. Just go to generis.com slash carry and go to ServeHQ to sign up for your free 14-day trial and use the code carry C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. Well, a shout out to all our subscribers and particularly those of you who are new and to those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews. Uh, man, I'm so grateful. You know, Apple Podcasts have different stores around the world or whatever you would call it. So I was in the Australia uh, Apple Podcast world recently and Andrew Groza, is that right? Groza, Graza? Um, man, your review made such a big difference. He calls it restorative. He said, I may be a little exaggerated to say this, but Carrie and his podcast has restored my faith in leadership. I've been listening to Carrie's podcast now for almost three years. When I began listening, episode 219 was my first. Have to admit, I was a little cynical and jaded toward the practice of leadership, even though I was leading. But as I listened week in and week out, I was gradually won over by Carrie's candor and vulnerability, by insightful questions, and by the fascinating stories of his guests. Slowly, I felt my perspective clear and my passion come back to life. Man, that moves me. And I'm reading this because of what's coming ahead with Christine Kane. Uh, I'll tell you, cynicism is just such a challenge. So anyway, Andrew says, the breadth and depth of guests has kept me fresh, developed new skills, deepened my thinking. It has richly and positively impacted not just my professional life, but my personal life as well. My family, my friends, and those I lead are grateful. Therefore, I am too. Thank you. Andrew, man, thanks for that review. I am so humbled to hear that. Hey, we're all on a journey. And one day I think I'm going to write a book about cynicism. Uh, here's the difference, right? Like as you get older, you see life for what it really is. But the challenge is to keep your heart fully engaged. And I think that's what this episode hopefully will do on the podcast. So, hey, keep the reviews and uh, the ratings coming. We really appreciate them in whatever part of the world you find yourself in. Uh, Christine Kane is my guest today. She's the founder of A21, and she's the recipient of the Mother Teresa Memorial Award. And she talks about the pain of leadership in a highly critical, outrage-driven culture. It is easy to get cynical, disengaged. And um, <laughs> she talks, we talk. It gets emotional about how to lead with your heart fully in it for decade after decade after decade. Man, I'm so glad to have Christine on. She's got a brand new book as well we'll talk about. And I want to thank our partners for this podcast. We can build a team and bring this to you absolutely for free. And these are people that we vet and really believe in. So giving is a concern. Money, somebody told me years ago, money's a problem whether you have it or whether you don't, right? And you never know with a volatile economy. So what's going to happen? You're doing well now, but what about six months from now or a year from now? You know, the economy will shift. We've got signs of inflation, etc. Wouldn't it be great if you could be prepared by understanding how healthy your church is now, no matter what reality you might face? Well, that's why listeners of this podcast have an exclusive opportunity 
to get their Generosity Pulse Report. Think of the Generosity Pulse Report as a quick snapshot of the health of the culture of your stewardship and giving. When I ran the church for 20 years, I was looking at the giving data all the time and looking at our health. And now that I run a company, I'm doing the same thing. You've got to be on top of this. So what if you could do that for free? You can schedule your free Generosity Pulse Report today. Get a snapshot of how your church is really doing and how well prepared you are for the future. Go to generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And uh, check out ServeHQ. They have helped over 2,000 churches since 2015. And those are churches of all sizes. So what do they do? Well, it's a powerful, simple online training experience. That's what it is. A new approach to digital messaging and an automated step-by-step follow-up tool all included in ServeHQ. So imagine having one tool to onboard new volunteers automatically, handle your membership process, all your leadership development, your team communication, an online ministry school, and well, where else does your imagination want to take it? They have a training library with over 800 videos with quizzes, and you can engage your people with videos, GIFs, images, files. You can send video messages to individuals or groups. All this at ServeHQ. It's one unified tool, and you can save 10% off for life by using the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, at ServeHQ.church. You can learn more and start your free 14-day trial today. Well, let's have a conversation now, a real one, with the one and only Christine Kane. Christine, great to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Kerry, I'm so happy. I'm happy to be with my fellow Commonwealth man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. As, as I joke, right, we know a good cup of tea when we see one. We do. We do. But this is how the Queen really speaks English, how I do. <laughs> <laughs> you say Australia is the Queen's English? Well, you know, kind of like, well, you Canadians have got a nice accent, but you know, this yeah, is yeah. like, how, this is how the queen wishes she could speak. This is okay. I know this is not why we're here today, but I would love to, and maybe a listener has this, I would love to figure out like from the United Kingdom, how did Australians end up sounding the way they did? New Zealanders end up sounding the way they did. Canadians that almost have a Midwest accent. Every once in a while, I get a note. It's like, I can tell you're Canadian. It was the way I said about or something like that. But but then even in America, like they say, the Southern accent is very similar to Old English, which is like, okay, I don't understand that. One day when I'm bored, I'm going to explore that. So if somebody knows about it. And we've got the South African accent as well. Oh yeah, the South African accent. No, there's a little bit of Afrikaans in there. So I have Dutch in my background. So I can hear in a South African, I can hear the Dutch. Uh, yeah, yeah, I could tell them all the time. When people meet me in America, they think, are you British? And I'm like, or, or New Zealander. And I'm like, wow, you know, for us, we could tell South African or New Zealand or English or Canadian or Australian. It yeah, sounds yeah. very different. So what city in Australia was it for you? Sydney, Australia. Sydney. Now, when you go so back most- to Sydney, do they say you sound American? No, I don't have an American accent. I, I didn't um, move here until I was 45. And we travel so much internationally ah. that I... Now, my children have gone to school here, so they uh, they speak both. We say, I, I tell them when they start speaking to me, I go, speak Australian. And so then they pull out their Australian accent, and then with their friends who can't understand them, they speak um, American. That's fun. Okay, yeah, because I talked to people who emigrated maybe earlier, and they're like, yeah, I don't speak my native tongue, and I don't speak American either, so I don't know what yeah. I am, right? It's like my dad, he doesn't quite speak Dutch, and he's still got a, a Dutch accent when he speaks Canadian, so... Or English, yeah. I should say. Anyway, hey, we I really appreciate your new book. And I want to sort of surf off that a little bit. So we are in a really 
interesting season when it comes to spirituality, Chris. And, um, you know, we have a lot of business leaders listening, church ministry leaders, and there's been just been so much drift, so much deconversion, some, so much gravitational pull against, like I have these conversations all the time with people who are like, well, that's the organized part of religion that I really don't like. And so I'm spiritual, but I'm not very open. Um, Christianity really seems to have lost a massive amount of influence in the West and even in America. And I think the pandemic accelerated that when you look at that. Um, I'd love to know, agree or disagree, we're losing influence. And then can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. And I would say in America, because it's unique. Now, I grew up like you're in Canada. I'm in Australia. I was in Australia. And so we grew up in very secular, humanistic. Yeah, that ship sailed a long time ago in our countries. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, when I used to travel, I started traveling to America in 1998. And it was like a foreign world to me because I had no idea that you would um, thread sort of Christian culture, for want of a better phrase, um, so much through society, you know, in politics, entertainment, you know, universities. I mean, it was in Australia, we just never had that. So you were either, um, you were just a person, like we were all people. And then according to your faith tradition, you had to learn to outwork that and live that in a very multicultural world. Mm -hmm. And so you couldn't lead out. It's not that you had this this Christian, Judeo-Christian infrastructure that was going to somehow give you a benefit. In fact, it was not beneficial. It was not cool to be a Christian. You know, people would. So a a lot of what I see happening here now, and I'm watching people really be surprised about, I kind of am looking at it going, this is like normal Christianity in most of the world. And when you do what I do, um, I travel so much and with our work with A21, you know, I'm I'm in the Middle East, um, definitely in Europe, Eastern and Western Europe quite often. So, you know, I I mean, just before the lockdown, um, one of the last places I went to was Qatar and watching the Christians navigate that culture and being in a Muslim nation and um, how they could live out their faith um, in that context um, that's just sort of normal. All my ministry life, all of my traveling life has been in and out of countries where there was not a predominant Christian subculture like I have seen in America when I first came in my early years. And because, and you're right, um, the the shift has been rapid. I, I remember, Kerry, when I was uh, young, I've got two brothers, we used to go on vacation to this place called Umina in in um, Australia, uh, in New South Wales. And my dad, because we're Greek, everything's colourful, everything's loud. My dad would put up um, one big umbrella um, on one side sort of of the sand and then a big beach towel on the other side. He would say to us constantly, when you go out, the undertow is so strong, but you're not going to know that the currents underneath are always shifting. And so he would say, get up frequently and check your markers. If you don't check hmm. your markers, um, then the currents are changing. So you are just going to be swept out. You don't have to do anything to drift, just do nothing. And I think what has happened in our world is a lot of us and and perhaps even Christians sort of, when I say did nothing, it wasn't like we were actively engaged in, a, in the world. Um, there was a Christian subculture that ran parallel to the world. And what has happened hmm. is I think that framework is what has been falling apart, but it was an artificial bubble anyway. And so now we are in this thing called the world. So the world has shifted 
massively for everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are on the spiritual kind of line or whether you're not spiritual at all. Um, my friends, I have, I have plenty of friends across the board of different faiths or no faith, and all of them have just been so uh, disrupted by what has happened. And here in America, especially in the last five years, five or six years, and particularly the whole world this last one year. And so I think what it is, is that all of us have come to a place where we're going, let me check my markers and then reevaluating what are my markers. So some of these things that we call deconstruction or, you know, people are just kind of thinking what's going on. That's not a bad thing. It's like, we're all evaluating what was my life built on and what principles, what markers were sort of taking me true North and um, in a positive direction. And it is all a lot more confusing, I think, right now because everything has shifted. It's not just politics. It's education. It's economics. It's mm. science. It's technology. There is not one sphere of society that has not had this massive upheaval. And um, I think everybody, regardless of what they believe, has been really, really massively disrupted in their inner realm. There's external changes, but those external changes um, have, I think, created an internal angst and in a big way. I think it was Yuval Harari, if I got this right, um, who who said the response to the massive disruption we're in right now shouldn't be panic because panic assumes control. He he said it should be bewilderment. And I thought that was really good. I've been looking a lot, reaching, reading some futuristic type books about what to expect in the next decade, et cetera. And I think it is a bewildering. I think there are panicked Americans and Canadians and conservative Christians right now, but we have people of all stripes who listen to the show. And it's interesting to sort of look inside. And I think you're right. Deconstruction, there's a lot of deconstruction happening, but deconstruction doesn't have to lead to destruction, right? That's right. Just because you're deconstructing your faith doesn't mean you're destroying your faith. And I think often in my case, deconstruction has led to reconstruction in a healthier way. But I'd like to I'd like to go back to something you said, you know, growing up in Australia, living four decades there. You said you had to think differently uh, as a person of faith in a widely post-Christian secular culture. And obviously you have a strong if you've been to Australia, there's a strong Asian influence there as yes. well. Right. So you have Buddhism and and uh, a variety of perspectives in that nation as well. Uh, plus, obviously, Aboriginal spirituality. What were some good techniques for you as an Australian to be able to live as a person of faith in that culture? And that then what were some things that if you tried them, it almost always ended in catastrophe? Like what, what were some, because this will be helpful for people who are going through the shift right now in America, Very Canada, much. and beyond. And I think what we had to learn from the word go, um, I'll give you even a, another example. I grew up in a staunch Greek Orthodox home. Hmm. So my parents were immigrated to Australia from Alexandria, Egypt, and they were, um, you know, Greek and to be Greek is to be Greek Orthodox. It's a cultural mm. thing as much as a religious thing. And what you'll find often with immigrant communities all around the world, they tend to be more protective of their culture, even outside of their country, than inside because they're so wow. desperate for their children. So, you know, when I go to Greece, they're like, oh my gosh, you're more Greek than we are because my parents were, you know, so strict that, you know, you we had very few uh, Australian friends or friends from other culture. It was just very, very the Greek bubble, for want of a better phrase. Um, and so then even when I 
uh, became a follower of Jesus of my own volition and began to go to a non-Greek Orthodox church. That was extremely challenging for my family. And Did it feel um, like disloyalty? Like what did it feel like? So. Yeah. Disloyalty. And, you know, in some cases for, for someone like me to convert, it would be almost equivalent to like a Muslim converting to Christianity because it's just so shocking that you would leave the tradition of the church and the whole history that goes with that. And to them, it's like you're leaving your whole Greek culture. And you know, it was it was a, a very painful season in my life, but it taught me right from my own home, I was single living at home, that there was no way I was going to get up and be able to do a four spiritual laws conversation with my family every day. It wasn't like pull out the Romans road to nowhere. That was not going to work. Um, I couldn't draw the two cliffs and, you know, the cross in the middle. It was because my family was like, you know, well, we've had the Orthodox faith is the first faith. You know, it's the, yeah, yeah. What are you, what are we've been around about? a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just kind of like, that was never going to work. Um, and so I learned early on, I it had to be an outflow of who I was and that I had to love people and find, when I say entry points, it was like by genuinely loving people, allow authentic spiritual conversations to arise. So it would be more because um, my values were different. My life was different and, you know, never perfect. But like if I made mistakes and the same to this very day, uh, we're all human, be very quick to own those mistakes, be very quick to apologize, be very quick Mm. to live a life of service. Like some of the things that now I think we're looking at post-Christian America and we're going, wow, our old forms of evangelism. No one's going to stand on a street corner with a bullhorn and start yelling at anybody. Nobody's going to, uh, you know, be doing door knocking and, you know, would you come to Jesus and here's you. That, that isn't going to work because nobody's asking the questions. And this was what I found in Australia. No, Nobody is really asking deep existential questions about where am I going to spend eternity? What is going to happen when I die? Now that worked Back in the 50s and 60s, you know, people came back from the war. It was very uh, in your face, like, you know, like death was in your face, uh, pain and suffering. Now it's a little bit more like that post-pandemic. But still, most people um, right now are wanting to know how can life on this earth work? And there is so much contention. There is so much anger. There is so much animosity. And, you know, I I lived out a lot of my early Christian faith before there was an internet and before there was social media. So that Mm. adds an entirely different dynamic. But I learned very early on in the workplace, in my university years, that I would have to build authentic relationships with people. I would have to engage in all of life and then allow um, opportunities to come up, which happened very frequently, um, you know, there would be this deep peace in me or this deep joy in me. And one of the best ways to explain this is I remember one of my friends back at Sydney University, I don't know how this might shock some of the listeners, um, and she was, you know, I came from sort of the immigrant area of Australia, sort of very low income, you know, government housing, and went to a school where I was the only one that kind of matriculated into university. It was just, you know, it it was not one of those great schools. And I had a friend at university, went to the best school, you know, had came from a great heritage, very connected in Sydney, the the total antithesis of everything that I was in terms of our socioeconomic background, our cultural background. And, but I was always a bit nervous 
about speaking to her about faith because truly, and way back then, I remember thinking, Kerry, what could I possibly have that she would want? She's got it all, Mm. lives in the best part of Sydney, comes from the best schools, has the great, you know, best boyfriend, like everything's fine. But I remember one day, and so this is Sydney, Australia, 1986, 87, you know, and so it was the height of rave parties in Australia. So the drug ecstasy was running rampant and in the university scene, people were doing ecstasy and people going to rave parties. And I hadn't seen my friend for about three days. And I was wondering what's going on. And then one day I was doing my homework up there at the home building at Sydney Uni and my friend comes running in and she goes, Chris, Chris, I couldn't wait to see you. She goes, you would not believe I've just been at this most amazing rave party. And it was it was the most incredible experience of my life. There was so much love there. There was so much joy. There was so much peace. We didn't sleep for three days. And, and, she, and she put a hand in a pocket, pulls out half an ecstasy tablet. And she said, Chris, it was the most unbelievable experience and I didn't want you to miss this experience. And so I saved you half of this ecstasy tablet because I wanted you to step into this experience. And um, I remember at that moment, tears started streaming down my face and internally in my heart, I sort of made a vow. And in my heart, it was like, I, I said to the Lord, you know, she is more passionate about the love, joy, and peace that this synthetic drug can bring to her Mm. than I am about my faith that theoretically is supposed to bring love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness, all of the fruit of the spirit. And I thought that is not the fruit of the drug of ecstasy. It's supposed to be the fruit of the spirit of God. And that started me so very early on in my faith journey on down a road to go, okay, our Christianity has to be lived inside out. It's not just about what laws are out there Mm. or what group I'm a part of or, you know, how militant I might be on social media. It's got to flow from within me. And then that, whether someone is a corporate CEO, a doctor, a lawyer, a stay-at-home mother, a nurse, they will see whoever I come into contact with, if they see these things flow from the inside out, then they will be more compelled to ask me what is the source of those things. And I think in the culture in which we live, we are being challenged. And this is why it's good that the bubble is has burst hmm. because we could hide behind a bubble. I, I used to always say, you don't have to be a Christian to live within the Christian culture. You either just need to vote right or say the right things and maybe attend you know, um, a service for one hour on a Sunday, but you don't need to authentically be a follower of Jesus to do those things. What the world in which we live today is that separation is now gone. And so you're forced. And I think that's perhaps why some of the, you know, we use the phrase deconstruction or, or, or the reevaluation of our faith. That is never a bad thing because we need to ask ourselves the question, was I just in sort of a cultural system or was I truly following Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform me from the inside out. And I mean, that has to do with our leadership, that has to do with our parenting, that has to do with every aspect of our lives. And I think what the pandemic has done is just brought it to the fore. Those of us that perhaps have come through this pandemic and 
I lead a global organization. We have offices of A21 in 15 countries. We've got three churches in three other countries. So I lead, you know, nearly 200 staff in 18 countries of the world during a global pandemic and lockdown. And there was, so there was no little cultural bubble that could keep that going. There either had to be an authentic faith. And from a leadership perspective, our leadership, my husband and I had to flow from the inside out so that we could keep people on mission, um, you know, able to pivot, able to make changes. And that what we needed most during um, this pandemic are things like self-control and goodness and kindness and peace um, and joy in the midst of a very, very challenging time. And it's so interesting, these things that we used to sort of roll our eyes at and go, wow, the fruit of the spirit, isn't that cute? Mm-hmm. Um, and you just go like, I, I have become the cornerstone of my leadership and just my life because I've discovered right back from Sydney Uni with my friend to today, ultimately that's what people are looking for, whether it's in satisfaction in their work, um, accomplishments in the world, um, or whether it's just in our own inner well-being and it's got to flow from the leadership flows from the inside out and life flows from the inside out. Hmm. No, you know, and I, I, I agree with you on that, Chris, and yet it is not what the culture is seeing in Christians, particularly uh, I think in the West, but, you know, in America as well. They see hostility, they see division, they see anger, they see judgment, all the things that honestly, just human to human, make you run in the opposite direction, right? Like if that's yes. if that's how this interview was going, you'd be like, well, Carrie, thanks for the 10 minutes, I, I 20 minutes, I think I'm out, right? Like that's what you do with as 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 a human. And uh, okay, so I, I sent you this clip. I don't know that you got a chance to see it or not, but it was a YouTube video from 1973. So young leaders, long before there was Jimmy Fallon, there was Jay Leno. And before Jay Leno, there was a guy named Johnny Carson. I know you're laughing because you remember Carson as a kid too. So do I. Yes, I do. We're both old enough. Yes. Uh-huh. We're both old enough to remember who Johnny Carson is. And 90% of the listeners are like, what? But anyway, most people know Billy Graham. So somehow I went down the YouTube wormhole and found Billy Graham on The Tonight Show in 1973 with Johnny Carson. And I watched the whole 20-minute dialogue, which I rarely do <laughs> on YouTube. And there was a gentleness and a peace in that dialogue and a respect. And Johnny Carson would be like Jimmy Fallon. I mean, he's paid to make fun of people, right? Like basically make fun of himself, make fun of people, uh, keep it light and entertaining. But you could almost sense this like genuine curiosity, respect uh, that Carson had for Billy Graham. And yet Carson wasn't a person of faith to the best of my knowledge. And I'm like, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, knowing that our interview is coming up, which is why I sent you the clip. I'm like, whatever happened to that dialogue? Whatever happened to that degree of civility? Whatever happened to that genuine curiosity and mutual respect? And Graham had just spoken to the largest, Billy Graham had just spoken to the largest largest crowd assembled in human history, 1.1 million people gathered to hear him speak live in Seoul, South Korea in June, 1973. And now he's on Carson to talk about it. And Carson is taking notes. And I'm like, whoa, what happened to that? So any any thoughts on the the demise of that kind of civil dialogue between the church and culture? For sure. And I, and I wouldn't limit it to just uh, the church and culture. I would limit it to just the world in general. Yeah, yeah, any, yeah, yeah. Of any sort of civil discourse um, in this age of outrage and anger. And there is, I think, a reason for it. There's, there's just been so much... Um, 
I think people, you know, we're post Me Too era. There are just, um, we have seen just so much misuse and abuse of power and structures. And I think, of course, obviously, um, with the heightened awareness of what has always been there, but, you know, the racial injustice and a lot of these things are coming to the fore. And it's not that they were never there. The difference is now, in 1973, again, I come back to there was no internet and there was no social media. Mm -hmm. And so there was, um, I think, the fact that everybody now has a platform, everybody now has an opinion, and everybody is at a, a different place of growth and where the world is at is like we instantly get online and say the first thing that comes to mind or what we authentically are feeling right now. But then what you had in that conversation, you know, you have Fallon and you have Billy Graham um, who even though they might be coming from opposing or just different uh, mm -hmm. backgrounds, there is a a maturity and a wisdom and a grace that comes to the table. But when our tables now are mostly online and you've got people at all different levels of emotional and spiritual maturity and um, with different backgrounds, all coming to the table and just maybe venting or crying out and trying to articulate their pain or their sense of injustice and putting it all out there. And then Everybody is just jumping online and this thing finds a life of its own. And so very soon it, it's not there, it isn't even a place for dialogue. Like I, I often watch people and I I see that they're trying to come there and say, can we talk about this? Um, but the minute someone else sort of jumps on and hijacks the conversation and just either their their tone or their posture um has gone. And I think in perhaps the Christian world in some segments of it, and again, I, I don't like to be generic, um, but in some segments of it, there is this fear that we might lose control or this fear that, you know, um, things are falling apart in society. And so um, we just think I'm going to come at it with the same tone. I'm going to come at it with the same posture as I feel the other side's coming yeah, at it. Fight fire with fire. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's antithetical to the gospel anyway, which is that, you know, love your enemies, that you be, you know, quick to listen, slow to speak. I think some of those things, and, you know, I don't know that it's always going to be like this, but I think a lot of people that maybe jumped on board in the height of the outrage, people are weary at this point of the year, mm. you know, 2021. And um, I'm watching lots of people begin to disengage because it's so toxic to the soul. The human soul was not created to be able to uh, yell and scream constantly and live in that angst and that tension. And so I, I think definitely it's the posture of some segments of the church, but there are I, I get to travel across the breadth of the church all the time. There are a lot of people um, that are authentic Jesus followers and a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders that nobody knows that are not, um, you know, that are doing the work in the trenches every day, grappling and wrestling with, you know, reconciliation and, and, and helping those on the margins and truly loving people and truly um, trying to extend the grace and the love and the mercy of God. And by far, there are more of them than anybody else. It's mm -hmm. just loudest voices, so the true. platform voices, and we can get really despondent um, in our life, I think, if we just focus on 
that. So it depends, you know, what TV network, you know, what cable TV you're watching. Mm-hmm. But the, And I know the numbers are large, but they're large in certain segments. They're not large by and large across. I think most people are just weary and exhausted and they want to do some good. They want to help. They want to get on and um, and learn. And so I'm, I'm never one to quickly dismiss all of the good that is happening because there is a lot of good that is happening. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we'll ever um, get that big sort of, when I say cultural voice that, you know, someone's going to invite us onto their talk show and go, you know, let's discuss the big issues. And from a faith perspective, I think it's going to be a lot more one-on-one where people encounter people. And, you know, it, it sounds simplistic, but but it is true that when um, the majority of Christians uh not even within the institutional system, just just people that are Jesus followers are living authentic Christian lives, not perfect lives, but day-to-day authentic Christian lives, and they encounter other people. Um, the fact is a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are desperate. A lot of people want help. Um, you know, I, I deal a lot with leaders, and so I'm finding at, at the top levels of organisations, um, people are weary. People are weary and their soul is weary. And so um, I don't think everyone's just turning on the TV going, I'm hoping for another one of those kind of conversations. Yeah. They're like, I get through today. Someone give me some some tools on how I can get through this today. So there's so many reasons and it's not just a church problem and a society problem. The, the entire fabric of society has shifted. And I've got, you know, some of the people that I follow, um, particularly are atheists, uh, they have no faith. And and they're so concerned about what's happening in the world. And I'm watching them argue with each other as much as, you know, Mm -hmm. you're seeing sort of church people argue with the world. And I think sometimes particularly those of us that are Jesus followers, because we know that we should be doing better. We know that should not be the posture of a Christian. You shouldn't be on there. And uh, you can can have convictions, but um, that ought to be presented with love. And there are other times that they don't actually even need to be presented. I just find just because we have an opinion about something doesn't mean we need to give it about everything. (laughs) And I think that's that's the challenge. So uh, you do have, for those listeners who may not be familiar, you do have a, a, a huge global presence with A21. Can you give us just a, because then I, I've got another question about that, but just a, a thumbnail of what you do in terms of trying to end human trafficking and the other good work that you're doing? Like, just give us a thumbnail. Very quickly, yes. Yeah. So what what we do is um, A21 is, you know, we're there to abolish slavery everywhere forever. So, you know, 14 years ago, um, I became aware of this issue. I didn't know that it mm. still existed and um, wanted to play my part. I have a background of, um, you know, brokenness. I was um, adopted at birth, abandoned and then adopted, and um, I encountered sexual abuse for many years of my life. So there was a lot of brokenness and a lot of healing I had to find in my life. And it's almost like so many parts of my broken background and uh, have been redeemed to be able to be used for good um, to help other people that are, that are find themselves in, in that, that kind of situation of, of abuse and, and brokenness. But we um, have a, a threefold purpose, and that's to reach the vulnerable, um, to rescue the victim and to restore the survivors. And so mm-hmm. we are involved across the world, everything from 
prevention and awareness, education and training to rescue and to restoration programs and aftercare programs, holistic health, you know, body, soul and spirit. Um, and so we we are 15 countries around the world and four offices here in America. And, and so, you know, um, we are very, very committed, not just to sending an ambulance to the bottom of the cliff, and, you know, um, and mopping up the mess, but putting uh, nets at the top of the cliff to say, let's deal with this at a systemic level so that we can help eradicate the things that lead to trafficking occurring in the first place. So it's a, a bold initiative. But, you know, in, in all of these years, we have seen um, so many, like tens of thousands of abolitionists raised up around the world and and partners partnering to really take this seriously. And I've seen such a difference uh, when I started it in 2008, in the in the church world, there was um, it's sort of two responses. You know, some streams of the church were very open, and then other streams. Uh, I got a lot of pushback, like you know, they the questions like, "Christine, here you are traveling the world and teaching and doing what you do. Why would someone like you?" be doing something like this. Now, I didn't realise then, I'm looking at some of the discussions now in 2021 and about the issue of social justice and Christian involvement in those sorts of areas. I did not realise that was a thing. I thought things like, you know, justice and evangelism, faith and works were simply two sides of the same coin. And you had arguments from people saying, that's not your place? Yeah, why are you doing, that's not really gospel work or, you know, that's why why are you being involved? And I thought that's what Christians do. Like we we do good with faith without works is dead. And, you know, um, if you don't put your faith to work in the world to make this world a better place and to bring justice, uh, I did not realise it was such a contentious, subject. I do still maintain sometimes ignorance is bliss because if I knew all the reasons why I couldn't do it back then, I wouldn't be doing it. And we wouldn't have <laughs> seen offices around well, the world. We wouldn't have the Mother Teresa Award and the President's Award and all the de- we would never have gotten that because I would have listened to all of the experts that told me you can't do this. And that goes to my question exactly, which is you're doing work that in my view is like, okay, who's going to criticize that? But clearly as a public figure, you get your share of pushback. You just talked about that. Even to the nature and quality of the work of like rescuing human beings from from slavery in whatever form, sexual or otherwise, right? And so people are like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. How do you respond to your critics? Yeah, it's 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 deeply painful because, you know, the, and when we talk about critics, um, it's not just, you know, there, there's the faith sector, but then there are other sectors of society that uh, perhaps you know, um, don't agree with my faith. And then so, uh, right. and, you know, we'll at me from that perspective. So we can, we can do the whole secular rescue, but please yeah, so don't there, bring there, God so into you, it. You can't win if you're not sort of right enough for the right or left enough for the left. And you're me, you're like, you may as well carry paint a target on your head <laughs> and get up every morning and go, well, here we go, because it's not a matter of will I offend anyone today? It's like even doing the work of justice. I mean, this is not even talking about, you know, standing up and proclaiming uh, some of the claims of, of our faith, which in today's culture, depending on who you're talking to, can mm-hmm. appear either bigoted or narrow or even dangerous. You know, in, in certain sectors, they're like, wow, you believe that, you know, and, and then, um, uh, and then when you do what I do and you're a woman in certain sectors of the faith sector, it's like, uh, you speak, you teach the Bible. Like, <laughs> yeah, so you you're know, right. You're right. This you is, I didn't I, think about that. That's multiple. I, you're getting hit so from every side. You have that 
seg. And again, this was not really what I encountered in Australia because there's sort of like not enough Christians for anyone to, they're just like, oh my gosh, thank God, we've got one more. Go out there. I don't care what you are, man, woman. Like, you know, thank God um, you can talk, get out there and do something, you know, a little bit like the the woman at the well, you know, in Samaria. It's kind of like, oh, just go, go and tell everyone. And, mm. you know, Jesus being raised from the dead and going, you know, Mary, go, go tell them, go tell them that I'm here. So Australia is a bit more like that. Desperation does that for you. You don't get too picky about, you know, which seminary did you go to? What gender are you? Uh, are you qualified to pass the Greek, Hebrew and Aramaic? And um, can you just tell people about what Jesus has done for you? So that, I, again, I say ignorance is bliss. I, I had to learn um, I, I go to Wheaton now. I'm in grad school because I wanted to understand what is this culture that I've stepped into. Like, okay, so so you've got that aspect that could be there, um, and you know, if you're from a, then you've got a secular world that you know maybe sees what I do in different ways. And at the end of the day, I'm like, can we all agree that it doesn't matter? Um, ultimately, what you may believe from a faith perspective, can we all agree that human trafficking is not a faith issue, it's a humanitarian issue, and that no one should be in slavery and that we can all work together, whatever stream we're from, and, uh, you know, uh, whatever our belief system is, can we work together to abolish slavery everywhere forever? Is that not the, but it's so amazing that even with something like that, how people will bring from both sides of the aisle will bring um, all of their other, you know, uh, baggage with that to either say, so how I handle my critics is, um, you know, as a lot of people say, you look for uh, the nugget of truth. I think Tim Keller says, you know, mm -hmm. you look for a nugget of truth um, and and see is there any truth in what people are saying? And, you know, I've made uh, mistakes that I've had to apologise for and make right in my life. And, you know, none of us are, are not perfect. It's just that when you're more public, um, a lot more people have an opinion. Yeah, your about mistakes get amplified. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and you're just like, wow, am I not a human being that can make mistakes, get it right, acknowledge it, apologize, make restitution, do whatever I need to do. Um, so that that sometimes, um, it, you know, can, it can get to your heart. But at the end of the day, and this is where I think it really comes back to both my faith, uh, my, working together with my husband, our team, we have a, a great extensive team and going, the people that know me best and know me inside out and have known me for decades, um, am I being authentic? Am I being true? Um, can they authentically speak into my life, not just pretend, but really speak into my life? So if I'm 55 years old, I'm not above correction. I'm not above learning. You know, I'm, I, I mean, I'm back at grad school so that I can learn, you know, at, at my age. Um, and so I, um, I think I've got to look at it. And then you have to really develop thick skin and a tender heart. It's, it's deeply painful when you're in the work of compassion because you want to keep your heart soft. That's how you keep getting out of bed and doing what you're doing. That's how uh, numbers don't become statistics and people remain people and lives remain lives. So it's very much like pastoral work. Mm -hmm. Keep your heart tender um, and not to self-protect or to try to self-justify. I mean, I could spend every morning till night just trying to make people, um, you know, like try to make things right. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Or no, 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 that's not what I said. Or no, no, no. You know, All day clarifying. I'd need, mm -hmm. need to have a full-time job 
to do that. So you go, okay, the people that I am accountable to truly and um, am, I, am I accountable? Have I done everything I can do every day to communicate things in the best way that I can communicate them? And then still know that ultimately, no matter what I do, there are going to be um, people that are just not going to vibe with what I do and they're going to go online, they're going to say things that may or may not be true, that may just skew a particular angle of something. And if I spend my life looking at that, I've had to really guard my heart from that. Now I have people that look and say, of course, if there's anything I need to know, um, but otherwise, uh, and I'm very- Let the fires burn? Is that part of it? And you just have to, um, you know, and I I work a little bit with- um, I don't know if you've had him on the podcast, um, Steve Cuss, who talks a oh, lot. Oh, yeah, about, I know Steve. Yeah, yeah, Steve's awesome about anxiety and and this third space where you cannot be responsible for what somebody else is thinking about you or saying mm-hmm. about you. And, uh, you know, I've had to do a lot of work to go, okay, um, because uh, it matters. I mean, of course, nobody wants to be um, slandered or misrepresented or maligned, but you would never get anything done in our modern world um, that is an online world, that is a very public world where everyone has an opinion. You would never, ever uh, fulfill your assignment or get your job or, you know, done if you spent all your time listening to the naysayers. And so, you know, from, from a more sort of scriptural perspective, um, I've got to keep a little bit of that Nehemiah kind of attitude, which says I can't come down from the yeah. wall to continue to have those discussions. And um, I've done, you know, if it's something that needs to be discussed, I've done everything I can that I know to do, you know, um, um, and I can't do anything else. And so I'm just going to have to live with the fact that it is what it is. And then you've got to move forward. So I don't know that you ever, you get better at going, okay, I can't, um, you know, spend my life listening to critics, I can learn what needs to be learned from that. But if I'm going to keep my soul intact, if I'm going to keep my heart in place, I mean, you see so many leaders, whether it's organizational leaders or pastoral leaders, uh, the reason I think many, and in this last year, have have walked away and not finished their race is because at the end of the day, it's like, I just cannot deal with the criticism anymore. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to offend or hurt somebody. And um, for my own soul care, I can't continue to do this. And I think some of, you know, when I wrote, how did I get here? It came out of some of that as well. You know, apart from leaders are always going through their own personal stuff. I had, you know, my mum passed away, my sister-in-law, my husband's sister and um, you know, his brother, uh, brother-in-law. And so you've always got personal things that you're trying to navigate. I'm raising two teenagers. I've got a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old. And, um, you know, I've got a marriage of 25 years. I've got a couple of hundred staff in 18 countries. So I've, I've got a life. And then you have this online uh, life that, you know, that that exists as well. And so um, I can't navigate all of those things. I can do the best that I can do for the thing that I've been called to do. But if I allow the critics to get into my heart and my spirit, it would take me out. And I think that's what almost happened. When I talk about my own drift, it was more, I I got to that place where I thought, if I just take my foot off the pedal, Kerry, that's kind Mm. of it. Like if I, because I, you know, 30 years I've been following Jesus and leading organizations, you know, I lead A21, I lead Propel Women. We've got 4,000 chapters in 120 countries. Um, I've been into uh, an advocate for women my entire life. Um, 
And so in the midst of all of that work, plus all the other stuff that I do, the teaching and the traveling, um, I, I sort of thought, you know, I don't know if I am made for this sort of like be a target or, you know, or mm. this sort of fighting certain fights that I never signed up for. And I'm like, wow, okay. And I thought if I just take my foot off the pedal and I remember this one night, you know, Nick was watching this um, Netflix series on um, the Navy SEALs and, you know, and and, uh, that's how he relaxes, on Hell Week. And I'm like, (laughs) what is this? at, At that point I didn't know what Hell Week was. So then I discovered that, you know, you've got to be a very elite um, Marine to even be able to go, you know, um, Navy person to even get into that. And then the whole purpose of that week is to break you, uh, you know, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually. You're like, I'm uh, living hell week, day. right? I'm like, this is insane. They don't let you sleep. They yell at you. And the whole goal is to make you ring the bell, like go and ring the bell mm. and then you can go have a shower and you'll still be in, um, you know, the armed forces, but you're just not going to be a SEAL. And so I felt like there was this one scene, they dropped the guys out of the helicopter into the uh, the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, they had to swim like whatever it was, six miles to the shore and not sleep. And then, you know, it, it's like brutal. But there was this one scene, they dropped them and, and I started to cry. Um, and so my husband already knew like, whoa, something's not right, you know. And I said, Nick, I think this is how I feel. Um, I feel like, spiritually speaking, I've been sort of dropped in the ocean and I know I can do it. You know, I've been dropped in there before. I know that I can, I'm not going to die. My body's going to be okay. I've got the strength to swim to the shore. I've got the strength to do all of the exercises I need to do. And um, I was really very emotional at Kerry and I said, "Um, but I don't know if I want to. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time in um, 30 years of uh, frontline ministry work, global work, um, social justice work, women's empowerment work, preaching and teaching and um that I thought I don't know if I want to and that scared me um mm. because I have been at places where I've thought I don't know if I can I don't think I'm cut out for this I don't think I'm good enough I'm not equipped enough I'm not resourced enough I'm not smart enough I'm not connected enough I've had many of those experiences in my life never had I had I don't know if I want to keep my foot on the gas at this level and keep going I don't mean like driven for accomplishments. No, I mean, no, just no. I mean like heartedly following Jesus for what I was called to do different, not measuring it with anyone else, but knowing that I was all in skin in the game. It's all in. And, um, and I knew I needed help, you know, and I've, I've, um, frequently, uh, throughout my life and especially with my broken past, um, gone into different, uh, counseling sessions and worked with therapists. And so I knew I needed to go and see someone because I thought this is, um, not a good place. And I remember coming to that place, I said, you know, nobody would even know, Nick, that I took my foot off the gas. I've got sort of so much momentum from 30 years. And I wasn't thinking I'm going to go do anything bad. So I'm not going to go and have any big backslide. I wasn't thinking, you know, I'm going to walk away from the faith or, you know, go and do anything destructive. It was just take my foot off the gas. And I said, nobody would know. Um, There is so little discernment out there. And I've got so much momentum that I could pretty much cruise. Um, At the time I was, you know, early 50s. I could cruise into my 60s, um, come out every now and again, do a message, do whatever. And and nobody would even notice. And then it was this moment in my life and I went, but Jesus would know. He would know that I took my foot off the gas and he would know that I 
didn't have all my skin in the game. Nobody else would in Christendom. They're like, Chris Kane's doing all this stuff. It's awesome. But Jesus would know and I would know. And and I, I want to be, I think in that moment for me, in, in terms of spiritual leadership, it was like when the Apostle Paul says, you know, there's one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press. I, it, like was I willing to keep pressing Um not for anything at my level, at my age and stage, Carrie. I'm not looking. I'm not looking for platforms. I'm not looking for invitations. I'm like, that's all. You know, the Lord's mm. been very gracious to me throughout my entire. You don't need life. that. That's not what no, it feels. No, it's, it's it's like I'm 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 55. I'm I'm you know the finish line is closer for me. I've got you know less time in front of me than I have behind me, and I plan to live a very fruitful and long life. But whichever way you want to slice it up, I've got less time ahead of me than behind me as a leader. Um, in every way of my life. And so, you know, kind of going, helping and and talking through this for many, many months, um, it was like, am I up for what leadership entails um, in the 21st century with the shifting currents, with a very public profile, with a a target on your head, no matter what you do? And, um, you know, with everybody having an opinion without knowing you personally in any way, um, you know, is am I up for it um, and for the sake of the next generation? And am I up for, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to be misrepresented. Like it's for any leader right now, no matter what sphere of life you're in and in the midst of our cancel culture, it, it is, you're really counting the cost. You're going, wow, you're counting the cost. And I think particularly if you are a Jesus follower, you have profoundly, no matter how long you've been walking with him, and how sanctified you are, you really know that you've still got a long way to go. So we are so profoundly aware, uh, hopefully if we're self-aware, of our own humanity. And so you're going, I know that I'm likely to make a mistake, to say something wrong, to maybe do something in the wrong way because things are changing so quick. What you said yesterday can be weaponized against you today. And when you have a life of speaking as long as I have, you've got 35 years of (laughs) Stuff Somebody out there. can go and into the archive. Sometimes, uh-huh. sometimes I see someone take something that I said, um, you know, ten years ago that I still would say today. But in today's cultural moment, how I would frame what I said would be entirely different. And so I almost think you sit here and you go, "It's not even fair that you're taking something that was said that is true in and of itself." that was said in a particular way because it suited that cultural moment and that particular crowd that you were speaking to in the particular country, especially when you're me and you've spoken all around the world, it was appropriate. There was nothing, you know, wrong with doing that there. But you pull that into this context in this hour with whatever social issue is flying in the moment right now and suddenly you go, wow, wow. You know, when you're a speaker, uh, what you're trying to do to help people can be weaponized and used against you. And you start to wonder, you go at 55, do I just want to take my foot off the pedal and just go, you know, I might go run a taverna in Santorini, Greece, and just speak to my people that come and buy the baklava and talk to them about Jesus. And, you know, I'll I'll be there for that. I'll sign up for that. That's great. So, so what I'm saying is we, we all, so whether someone's, you know, early on deconstructing their faith or somebody is just, you know, having challenges in their marriage or having all, there is not one person, I don't think, if you're truly engaging with this world that is not wrestling internally as a leader uh, with counting the cost 
and going, wow, how much of my life do I spend on the defensive and how much of my life am I on the, you know, offensive, taking ground, going forward. And that that is my daily battle. And that's a lot of why I wrote, how did I get here? Because I don't know that you even just, I mean, I made the decision, yes, I'm going to keep going. But that still doesn't mean that suddenly everything's gotten peaceful and right. kumbaya. But I am convinced that the things that I wrote about are the things that have kept me anchored and will keep me anchored to the end. And this is just part of the cost of being faithful to what I've been called to do. It's tremendously clarifying. I told you before we started, I I really enjoyed the book. And I meant that in a good way. I feel like it's a fresh voice. And I think you just described the existential angst that pretty much every leader listening to this podcast at 55, 35, 25, either has gone through or is going to go through. And when you were describing that, I'm like, I think I had that conversation with myself over the last few years. Yeah. Like, I really feel like I did. It's like, okay, I've gotten to a point in life where I'm not leading a church anymore. I got this little hobby that became way bigger than I ever thought in doing this stuff, right? And do I really want to do this? Do I want to build a team? Do I want to sign up for the next few decades? Do I have to? You know, to quote our friend Andy Stanley, he would say, are we done yet? Like, yeah. <laughs> aren't yeah. we done yet? Like, when, when is this over, right? And, and you know, obviously Andy's not done yet either. But, you know, you, you, you ask that question. And I think the criticism and the, uh, and I don't get a lot of it compared to most leaders to, to a lot of the listeners here. But yeah, that really, it's like, I don't need this anymore, right? Like, and even, I don't want to be unfaithful, so I'll just, I'll just back off a little bit. You know, I'll, I'll give it 70%. I'll give it 60%. I'll cruise. And when I was a 30-year-old leader, Chris, when I saw that in 55-year-old leaders, I hated it. Me too. And then I hit 50, and I'm like, oh, this is why that happens. And now yeah. you have this weaponized, ideological, angry, outraged culture that just made it even more toxic. How Was there a turning point? Why did you decide, okay, I am going to continue to do what I feel called to do? Yeah, and in my case, because I am a Jesus follower, it will come back to that. And it's because Jesus is worthy and Jesus is the one that called me. And when I said to him, I'll follow you to the end. So I want to Mm. cross that line. And particularly, I think I'm 55 and I I say, you know, I want to finish well. I want to cross the line. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I do ultimately, I think for me, the pain of regret would be greater than the pain of carrying on. Yeah. And no, you I, just got to choose your pain. <laughs> I hear that. I, I didn't expect the interview to go in this direction. And for those of you watching, you can see the emotion right now in the interview for the last 15, 20 minutes. This is a live issue. And uh, I think you can maybe hear it in our voices too. But you know what it was for me? It was like, you can only sit on a beach for so long. And I want my life to be about something. And I want to help the next generation. And I want to to run the race well. And I want to try to use what I believe God has given me for the benefit of others, not just the benefit of myself. Um, But some days I wake up and I'm like, really? (laughs) You know, I get it. It's an active struggle. And I, I had an incident very recently where I posted something and I won't say what, but like, People got angry and they accused me of being woke and selling out and lost hundreds of followers. And I'm like, really? And that just, it just makes you sad. It gets to you. Yeah, it really, really does. And I, I think, and and I think because we're older, 
you're profoundly aware that it's not necessarily going to get easier. You you really, you can see where the world's going. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. No, I have I'm, that thought. I'm like, don't get cynical, Newhoff. Yeah, I'm not like, and, and it's not even... Um, Cynical. It's like it's, it's for me. It's like okay. Are you going to play it safe? Mm. And it's this is to me when we talk about we war against the flesh and the spirit because yeah. there's a very real side of me, my flesh that's like uh, I'd like to, and you know <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to um, play it safe. It would be less painful, and um, you know. But the fact is that you know I've spent thirty years of my life. Uh, preaching and teaching and saying, you know, Jesus didn't come to make us safe. We came to, you know, uh, make a mark. And it's not just make a mark of till I get comfortable or I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish or, you know, achieve the accolades that I wanted to achieve. Because at this point, it, it is, I, I think almost I could say it, and my age is a lot to do with this, is that um, it, it really isn't about me. It, it's about my daughters. It's about mm. the future. It's because I do love the church um, and I, I foremostly love Jesus and I truly believe in the gospel message and God has always just used very flawed people yeah. Um, yeah. The, that deliver that. And so I think, you know, someone listening to this in their 20s and 30s is like, um, you know, come on, man, if I could just get Chris, if I could have 15 officers and if we got the Mother Teresa <laughs> Humanitarian Award and if we, this is th this is my goals, this is what I'd like to do. And um, I'm like, you really begin to understand and I don't know that you can understand till you're at this stage when Paul goes, you know, I, I, I'd love to go home, but it's to your benefit that I stay. Or yeah. I'd love to, um, you know, it, it's and you start to go, this, this is what it's about. So for me to stay in the game, for me to stay on the field and um, continue to be, by God's grace, I pray, you know, a role model for women and to help women move forward. Um, and, and for the church in general, you know, I have the privilege, I, I speak 45 Sundays a year in churches around the world um, to, to help build the church and then to continue to be um, an advocate uh, to abolish slavery and continue to raise up the next generation mm. with all of the angst that that involves of, you know, leading a generation of, of millennials and Gen Z and um, going, okay, I believe that the gospel is so worth it um, and our, our job on this earth is what we've been called to do, you know, and when Jesus called me, it's not going to be over until there's a white chalk mark around my body. So if I woke up this morning and I was not in a very sealed body bag in a very cold room, it means I'm still here and it means I've still got a purpose. And, um, you know, I've got great tools and, uh, you know, I've just, I'm, I'm in my last sort of semester of um, a, a degree in evangelism, a, a master's in evangelism and organisational leadership. And it's just like, okay, so I'm equipping myself for this generation to understand the nuances of what's going on in the world. Um I've got, you know, 35 years of life experience in Christ to bring to the table and um, I want to continue uh, to do that. Now, a lot of the, all the operational side of our organisation, um, we've already done a lot of that handing off. We've got a, a fantastic organisation, a wonderful team, brilliant people, highly skilled uh, lawyers and, you know, social workers and psychologists and law enforcement and aftercare workers and all of the all of the things. So, um, you know, working with teams, raising up teams, I, I've done all of that. I think one of the greatest gifts 
that I can do at the end of the day. I, I can bring all my leadership skill to the table. But, you know, Paul says at the end of the day, um, he says, fathers, I, I will add my Christine version, you know, um, teachers, you have many. Fathers, and I would add mothers, you don't have a lot. And I think if people like you and I stop now, it's not even so much about the leadership principles we're teaching people or the organizational principles. You can go get a book and you can listen to a thousand, you can listen to every episode of your podcast for the last, you know, um, and get all of that. But people that are willing to stay in the game to the finish line, that's what's becoming rarer and rarer. And so perhaps the greatest gift we can give to people is not to drift from that. Now that's not easy. No. And, and, you know, you know who I think has modeled that really well is Gordon McDonald. And uh, he's been on the podcast a few times. He'll be back if he's not back already. I talk to him regularly and, you know, he turned 82 this week as we're recording this. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a model in my heart for what, if I get that many years. And he would say the call for the last 20 years has been being a father to people and his wife, Gail, a mother. And he said, we live in that kind of generation that needs it. Speaking of generations, um, do you see a shift with millennials and Gen X? We now have Gen X kind of rising a little bit. Do you get less pushback from them? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you discovering about the next generation? Um, very much, like, obviously, in, in terms of uh, they don't have a disparity. Like, so some of the yeah. initial resistance I came up against, which was, you know, um, is it gospel work? Or justice work. That is one in the same thing for, for this so they generation. They see it as, of course, it's, it's like, well, your thing is they would not sign up, I don't think, for anything, whether it's in the church or in, um, you know, any other sort of organizational ministry. Uh, so I think even in, you know, the marketplace, in the corporate world, pe- people want to be involved with corporations that have got a, you know, a mission that's bigger than themselves and is giving back to the world. And uh, certainly when it comes to our faith sector, um, they're not separating. It's like my my faith has to work here on earth as it is in heaven. They are not, and, and, and I think this is good. This is a part of maybe we've done this part right um, some of us that have just said, okay, and, and of course I would be pulling very much from NT right of that it's the here and now. It's not like I'm not just waiting to pray some prayer and then I'm waiting to die so that my life begins. It's mm. like I understand that um, if I have truly been born again, um, that I want God's will to be done here on earth today as it is in heaven. So then I, I, I'm going to, I want to bring justice to the world. The thing though that um, is going to be an interesting thing for this generation is bringing um, justice and righteousness together as well and uh, mm-hmm. truth and righteousness because I think sometimes we've got to be careful that, you know, I- I'm so glad for the Reformation in that, you know, we all sort of discovered that good works are not going to save you, you know, we're sa- saved by grace through faith um, and that's awesome. But we have to be careful now that we're not sort of replacing one form of good works pre-Reformation, which was I've got to work my way and be good enough for God, to I've now got to do enough good things um, that would be applauded by the world and depending which uh, thing is the popular thing at the moment. And if you're not posting about that thing, if you're not liking that thing, if you're not saying what I want you to say about that thing. In the way I want you to say it. Mm Mm-hmm. In the way that I want you to say, and this is what leaders are, are, are 
a, a you know a, a challenge with it. I mean for me I, I I had the same experience as you you know I posted something that was very biblical like it, it actually I, I didn't even think it was contentious and then I watched like ten thousand people go in I mean I timed it it was it was in under thirty minutes and I went wow how crazy is that and that didn't bother me because I thought if that's how quick. I've served you for 30 years. You know my life and my if if in under 30 minutes you can dismiss 30 years and nuance and have a benefit of a doubt, ask a question because you did not like how I said a particular thing that maybe, you know, um, I don't even really make political statements, so it wasn't even that, but because you read into it as a, a political statement, um, I'm like, that is deeply disturbing from a theological leadership issue. It's not like Mm. I I need it for me. I'm just looking at, wow, in terms of spiritual formation, making disciples, creating future leaders for the church, this is really, it's it's making me really think, like what an interesting issue. Um, And so the, the thing that the Lord has granted me, which I think is very helpful, and again, because I was older when the internet, social media came on, so and and the Lord had done so much in my life, I wasn't looking for that, but I, I have always been far more obsessed about how many people on this earth are not following Jesus than how many people are following me. Mm-hmm. And I've been far more obsessed with becoming more like Jesus than people liking my post. So that is really good because it does take a lot of pressure off you. You know, you're just like, I'm not doing that for that. And at this stage of my life, can I tell you, Carrie, at 55, I'm not spending all my life thinking, how am I going to build a brand? How am I going to, I mean, that, I'm not saying that's not important, but for me, it's not my priority. And right. also the message that I've got to bring um, to the world is is not going to be liked if I truly believe what the scripture says by everybody. Um, and it's not, and, and, and my thing is, um, I, I want to be every. I want as, to be as broad as I can. For for me, social media is not a place where I go for contention or argument. In, in that sense, it's I want to encourage people. I want to inspire people. I want anyone, from someone that that has no faith to someone that is, you know, a, a, a professor at a seminary, to to feel like I could come there and be encouraged and be inspired. So it depends what you want for your platform. That's what I want for mine. Um, because I think that the issue is that the younger generation, um, if we begin to be way more concerned about how people are liking our posts than the work we do and whether we ourselves are becoming more like Christ, it's going to cause a lot of problems down the track. Mm-hmm. And that is something. You and I, I think I'm a year older than you. It's like, yeah, we just we have that pre-digital memory which is so good. And so I hope you're taking notes. And that seems to be a recurring theme now on the podcast, particularly over the last year, whether you're talking to you or Cal Newport or Seth Godin or others like that, that focus on the quality of your work, not the quantity of your likes or or the traction you're getting on social media. I think Cal had a book called Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. Right. Like if you're looking for that kind of thing, it just be really good. And and we're trying not to do that to, you know, have people not ignore us, but yeah, that's so good. Man, I got to tell you, we, we didn't go half the places I thought we would go today, but it was so rich. And I think this is like, this felt like a, I don't know, a therapy session for leaders, soul few for, for leaders. We're kind of all in this together. And I would just want to give you an opportunity 
to say a final word to the leader who is where you were a couple of years ago watching Hell Week going, this is me. I don't know. Should I take my foot off the gas? Business leaders, ministry leaders, um, people who want to be leaders one day and maybe are in school. What, what would you say to them if they feel like, I just can't handle this. I'm taking my foot off the gas. For sure. I think there's a couple of things. And and first and foremost, um, it's great to be honest about where you really are. And I think uh-huh. don't be to be honest. That's that's the big thing because I think to try to squash that, to even heap guilt and shame and condemnation on yourself, like it is not going to be helpful at all. It's so important to go, um, I'm going to raise my hand. I need help and I need help to work through this. And I think that's a really good thing. And I think it always, you've got to come back to your why. Um, you, you know, you can be, uh, uh, have a huge public profile, um, but the the affirmation of the crowd, and we all hear it so much. And I think it, whoever's listening to this, when they're young, already they're filtering this through. That's okay for you, Chris Kane. You have millions of followers. You can mm. do this. So, so I realize that's you know you're you guys have already listened to this in ten years. This is going to really speak to you. But um, you know, a lot of us that are sort of, and I, I think late thirties, early forties are beginning to have these uh, thoughts mm. very very deeply um, right now. They're looking at it going wow, this cost, it's, you know, either I'm not where I thought I was going to be or I am and it hasn't delivered what I thought it was going to deliver um, internally and uh, what now? So you've got to keep coming back and I keep coming back to this in the book because this I've got nothing else for you. (laughs) This, Mm. This is it. Why did I start this? I started it for Jesus. Who am I running for ultimately? Yes, do I want to build the world's best and human trafficking organization. Yes. Do I want to build a, a phenomenal women's empowerment organization? Yes. Do, to the best of my ability, do I want to bring the best uh, talks that you could ever bring? Yes. I, I do all my due diligence. I work really hard. I want all of those things to happen. Um, are they ultimately going to bring me significant security, peace, joy, hope, or contentment? Well, no. Because as we've all discovered, whether it's the global pandemic or personal disruption in our own life or failures, mistakes, whatever it might be, um, we're all going to be at this place at some point going, none of that is satisfying and none of that is enough. There's got to be the bigger reason. So you come back to your why I did it for Jesus. And so if someone else doesn't misunderstand and for me to actually remain faithful to Jesus, that means... I'm people on the right are not going to like me and people on the left are not going to like me. And that's the way it's going to be. Am I still willing? I think no matter what, I I don't believe leadership needs to be lonely at all. I've got friends. I'm I'm, I'm a very big believer in all of those things. But what I am convinced of at 55, particularly after the last couple of years, there is a definite place of aloneness, and particularly if you're a a faith leader. Hmm. Jesus had it. Even when you take your friends to Gethsemane with you, they're going to fall asleep. And you are somewhere, whether you are 55 or 56, uh, and whether we're going to, I'm sure when I'm 60 again, you're going to have to get on your knees and go, I wish Peter stayed awake. I wish my friends were awake in this garden with me. And you're going to say to God, even after you've been faithful, Jesus was for 33 years, even when you've done the will of the Father, even when you say my food is to do the will of 
him who sent me, even if you believe your entire life, I have done everything I believe the Lord's called me to do. I've led through the pandemic. I've led this church. I've led this this organization the way that I believe, not perfectly, but to the best of my ability. And now I'm in Gethsemane and I never expected to be in Gethsemane. And I'm saying to God, uh, I don't, I don't want to drink this cup. And I think mm. that's where I was. I think that was, I, I don't, is there a, is there another way? Can I, can I please go and have my taverner in, in Santorini? Can I just um, pull back? And you've got to get to the place. And this is that place of aloneness, which is probably only 1% of your life, but, but it's never going to go away. That 1% where it's just you and your why, which in my case is Jesus and go, um, Am I willing to say again, nevertheless, not my will, but thine? And I think that's where I got to. That's awesome. Yeah. Christine, thank you. Thanks for being so vulnerable. Thanks for being so open. Um, People will want to follow you online. Where where can they find you these days? And please be Uh, kind, people. Yeah, they are. No, no, no. I have 99% phenomenal, but but there's the reality. I know. We all all face it. And, and you have to know that if you're going to, our place is a really fun place, but it's uh, 99% um, awesome. But all the Christine Kane places, whether yeah, Christine Kane, yeah. Um, yeah, or, or you, you'll find me. You'll, it's, you'll it's, find. You'll find It's you. all there. Well, yeah. you know, the, the verse that I've thought about often is, well, to who else would I go, right? That's it. There, there's, there is no, and that's- What's the alternative? The end, but I wrote that is there, there is nowhere else. You know, you say you can only lie on a beach so long. It, when there's, it's, it, I, what I do know, is I believe what I've been saying for 30 years, that yeah, there is yeah, purpose totally. on the inside of you and that Jesus is worthy, that there is this passion and you will find it. Uh, you've got to be real in this moment um, and get help where we can, but we don't have to stay there. When we drop our anchor again, and that's like, you know, we'll end up, you drop that anchor again and you go, oh, I think, you know, in Zechariah, there's that scripture, Zechariah 9.12 about um return to your stronghold, um, prisoners of hope. Mm. And I think I've come out of this whole pandemic season, out of this whole season with the book and gone, you know, you can't pick whether you're going to be a prisoner. You're still in Canada, so you guys are still on lockdown. Yeah, but yeah, right now. choose the type of prisoner I'm going to be, and I'm going to be a prisoner of hope, and that's how I, I want to go out. Awesome. Well, the book is called How Did I Get Here? I would strongly recommend it. And what I love about it is even if you're not a person of faith, it is a very, very good read. If you find yourself drifting, lost, kind of confused because I think we all are to some level. You're going to really appreciate it. Christine, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Kerry. I've loved it. Thank you. Well, that was emotional. That was real. That was vulnerable. And that's leadership. And uh, Chris and I are around the same age. And I have been thinking a lot about, you know, how do I stay fresh and celebrating, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if God gives me that much time, I really want to see that for you. Uh, I was doing a deep dive into Google Analytics with my team. And one of the cool things is the number one demographic who listens to this podcast and accesses my content is 25 to 35-year-olds. But the second biggest demographic is 18 to 24-year-olds. And if you can master some of this stuff now, I got to tell you, like you've got a much better life ahead of you. And that's sort of the hope. That's why we do what we do. And Andrew whose review I read earlier in the show. Ah, man, that just encourages me so much. I've got a What I'm Thinking About segment. I'm going to talk about some things that will encourage you, or at least I hope they will. 
Uh, in the meantime, wow, we have uh, the one guest. Here's a trivia question. Who is the one guest out of 400 and some odd episodes who has two in the top five? There's only one person, and that is Gordon McDonald, and he's back. And we talk about being driven versus being called. Here's an excerpt. Driven people, I, I, this is not in priority order. Um, driven people can be angry people. Um, they want things to go their way. And when they don't, when someone puts a monkey wrench into the works, you can see anger. We've seen some big illustrations of leaders in the last several years who couldn't control their anger. Hmm. And, uh, and it, it finally lost them their leadership in one way or the other. People finally said, I'm not going to work with this guy anymore. Yeah. Well, I wrote down some other thoughts. People become obsessed about the symbols of leadership. Um, they have to have the best office. They have to drive the nicest car. They have to be in charge. They have to sit at the head of the table. They are always reminding you that they're one step above you. Um, there are people who are always addicted to expansion. No sooner have they finished one building program that they're beginning another. He's 82 years old and so sharp and has become a great friend. And I can't wait to bring you the third conversation with Gordon McDonald next time on the podcast. Hey, thank you to our partners, uh, Generis. If you do not know where your church is at for the long haul financially, you want a free report? Go to your free Generosity Pulse report at this address, generis.com slash carry. That's G-E-N-E-R-I-S dot com slash carry. Tell them I sent you. SurveyHQ would love to help you. You can sign up for your free 14-day trial and use the code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, to get 10% off for life. So what am I thinking about? I am thinking about the encouragement we all need as leaders. It's uh, super challenging to lead in this day and time. And uh, as we talked about a billion times, yeah, this has been an unprecedented season. But here are some things I know when I get overwhelmed, and I've been overwhelmed in seasons over this last year as well, you got to think about, okay, what is going right? Because mostly as a leader, you focus on what's going wrong. And to encourage someone, I, I love etymology. I'm not as good at it as a lot of people. But when you think about the origin of words, what does it mean? Encourage someone literally means to give courage to them. So I hope this gives you courage. Well, number one, you haven't quit, right? You haven't quit. And uh, that's good news. I always say never quit on a bad day if you're going to quit quit on a good day. There have not been a lot of good days recently, right, in the world. So uh, you're hanging in there and that's awesome. And I believe your faith and, and your strength can be renewed and restored. Number two, you're learning to lead in constant uncertainty. This is a superpower. Uh, I'm sure at some point the world's going to stabilize again, particularly if you're a young leader, you're probably going to see it stabilize. But you're learning now how to lead off balance. And in uncertainty, agility is ability and flexibility is a superpower and you're getting a graduate degree in that. Number three, you're navigating deep divisions and forging unity. Yep, it's a hyper divided time, but you're learning now the skill set to really how to navigate deep divisions and unite people and forge unity. And that's important. You're also bringing hope, right? <laughs> I, love, I love the idea that we leaders are dealers in hope. Um, and it is the ability to name brutal reality and never lose hope, as Jim Collins says. So hope is what people need right now. Hope is so hard to find. You're bringing it. 
Number five, for those of you who are people of faith like me, you're deepening your faith. Your reliance on God is probably moving into a very deep level, and that's a good thing. And then finally, you're learning new skills, right? (laughs) Every leader ends up in ruts, at least I do. And right now you're learning new skills at a rate you may not have learned them in years. So you're learning online, you're learning social, you're learning how to lead in division. Like, man, these are going to serve you well for a long, long time. So that is something I just want to encourage you with today. Uh, If you enjoy getting encouragement, I send a daily email, almost daily email to over 80,000 leaders. And you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash email to sign up for free. You'll also hear about all the things we're doing as well. But hey, that's just a little daily dose that I hope can really help encourage you. So grateful for you. Thank you so much for all that you do. For all the ratings and reviews, I'm grateful. Gordon McDonald next time, plus a whole lot more coming up on this podcast all summer long and throughout the year. Uh, Thanks for listening. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.